You are listening to They Must Be Destroyed On Sight. The following podcast contains adult language, adult situations, and spoilers for the movies discussed occur often. You've been warned. Now, take it away, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on sight. Okay, it's They Must Be Destroyed on Site episode, not episode, intermission episode, not regular episode. I'm all mixed up. I'm out of practice. It's been a couple weeks. Intermission episode 46. I'm your host, Lee Russell, and uh, yeah, we haven't had anything out lately. It's December. Uh, Lady Lee is finishing up her first semester of school, so she's super busy with shit. And... Um, yeah, she's learning to be a teacher, so that's more important than sitting here and talking to people about movies. And for me personally, there's just some stuff going on in the background as far as uh, some family health issues that take more precedent than me sitting around talking about movies. So, you know, it's kind of just when I find the time, I thought I'd get something out for you guys anyway. But, you know, we're, we're taking it a little uh, light this month. And um, Lady Lee's finishing up her school this very day, this semester, this very day. Taking her last exam, I guess. So, uh, and she's going to pass the flying colors. She is going to educate the youth of the future. Um, so she should be back for some stuff this month, I assume. Uh, we do have a couple ideas for some things we need to do so uh there you go but yeah that's just kind of why things are a little touch and go right now sorry about that for anyone who kind of likes having us pop up in their feed every week but sometimes it can't be helped anyway i've got some recent watches that i thought i'd talk about so i'm just gonna do the old uh solo cast here and uh, talk about some stuff i've watched to not get too necessarily deep into it or whatever but just something to tide you listeners over nice quick listen get in get out real quick some may say it's not all that exciting you know listening to my monotone voice drone on and on and on briefly about a couple movies but i like to think that i take it that's a whole novel level <laughs> Most likely. Most likely true. So we're going to take a quick break, listen to some podcast promos, and I'm going to come back and talk about, uh, what do I got, like six movies? Six movies I'm going to talk about. So uh, until then, contemplate this. You are the Puma Man. You ungodly warlock. Broadcasting from the Cursed Earth, the Psycho-Semanticast. Let us face, without panic, the reality of our time. The fact that atom bombs may someday be dropped on our cities. And let us prepare for survival by understanding the weapon that threatens us. To have a, uh, an ignorant, uh, thin-skinned megalomaniac uh, who 
sends off uh, you know, Twitters at 3 a.m. if somebody angered him. Neo-Nazis turning up in Washington, D.C. to have a rally saying, Heil Trump. We talk about politics. I knew I couldn't trust you corporate grease balls. We talk about movies. You can't come down here and arrest people just because of what they look like. Are you crazy? But that's police harassment. We talk about political movies. We're in trouble. The whole world's in trouble. They're all around us and we never knew it. You can only see them with these special glasses. The Psycho Semanticast. Motion Picture Massacre. Fuck you. We talk about exploitation movies, grindhouse movies, fucking cult movies, horror movies, okay? We don't talk about fucking romantic comedies over here. We're not talking about fucking Sandra Bullock or some shit. We're talking about good movies, the kind that people like to watch. Yeah! You ungodly warlock. KID-TV brings you the special event of the year, a first in television history. At this very moment, KID-TV has standing by a television crew at Santa Claus Workshop. And in just a few seconds, our special correspondent, Andy Henderson, will bring you a person-to-person interview with Santa Claus himself direct from the North Pole, where at the moment, the temperature is 91 degrees below zero. Now KID TV takes you via Telstar, Andy Henderson at the North Pole. All right, what do I got? What do I got for movies for you people to listen to about? Oh yeah, okay, so some people who've listened to this before may know that I kind of constantly now do little like weekend movie nights with uh, with my friends, uh, Lady Lee and I's mutual friends. We get online and do some online screenings and stuff like that every once in a while when I can find the time. 
I'm uh, not going to go through everything that I've screened, but uh, there are a few things on here that I should mention. So uh, I did Silent Night, Deadly Night, 1984. That's right, the original one, you know. Um, and yeah, it's been a while since I've seen that, and some of my friends had not seen it. So it was a fun little way to get into the uh, Christmas spirit. Been trying to like focus on Christmas Christmas E movies for this month, and that was the first dip into it. And uh, they all seem to like it. It's trashy, gory fun. I know it was very transgressive and controversial back in the day, and they like really leaned into it too to be that way. And you know, got people like. Siskel and Ebert really pissed off about it and uh, all that shit. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, th these days it's relatively tame, but at the same time you can see it was probably the most influential of all the sort of Christmassy horror movies that had come out. Uh, you got like New Year's Evil was also around this time, I believe, and... Um, God, I'm blanking on the names of them now. But, the, you know, there was a handful of other Christmas horror movies that had been out or uh, came out around this time. Uh, of course, there's the uh, Christmas segment in Tales from the Crypt. I think most people remember wh whether they saw it in the original Tales from the Crypt movie or they saw the remake in the Tales from the Crypt series years later. And... Um, yeah, I feel like all of them kind of pale in comparison to Silent Night, Deadly Night. It's the most sort of bizarre, gonzo version. It's it's the one that I think has influenced Christmas horror going forward more than anything else. Uh, just the, all the uh, all the very problematic mental health stuff going on in it, and uh, all that shit. It ju it just screams. I don't give a fuck, 1980s slasher to a T. And, and and when you think about it, it's kind of a highlight for the slasher genre, like, late in the game, because people seem to, you know, breeze over and think, oh, you know, slasher movies, that, they were popular for the entire 80s, and not really true. The, there was a boom period between about 80 to 82 or so, and then they really started to go on the decline. I mean, they're, they're outliers, of course, but a lot of those movies were just, you know, made really cheap and made really shitty or, you know, picked up by big studios because it was something they could program in and they were still slightly popular, but they were really on the decline by the mid-80s and uh, all but gone by the late 80s for the most part. And, you know, it wasn't until... You know, not necessarily true, but it wasn't until Scream that really slasher movies came back into prominence. There, were, of course, there was always slasher movies, but they were very much directed video and stuff. Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent here. The movie's really good. It's got Linnea Quigley in an earlier role, uh, getting nude. Um, it's actually got a lot of sex in it. I've totally forgot about that. It's it's a pretty horny movie, and um, and it's of course it has that duality of like. Uh, horniness and being punished for being horny and uh and just being punished for doing anything else really uh even no matter how how minor like maybe stealing somebody's stupid little sled will get you killed will get you beheaded um yeah but really good and the highlight of the series really although you know the sequel is half the movie is the first movie 
And then you get into part three, which kind of continues the story, but is totally bizarre. And then, like, four and five. And, I mean, five, the toy maker is just batshit crazy. Four isn't really good at all. But they're, they're, it is a unique series. It is very off-kilter and weird. And, uh, yeah, anyway, Silent Night, Deadly Night, we watched that. Another Christmas watch we did was my favorite Christmas action movie. And that's The Long Kiss Goodnight from 1996. Uh, directed by Rennie Harlan, of course, who, you know, has done some really good movies and some real stinkers. You know, he's... he's Honestly, he's done maybe two good movies. This is probably his best movie, if, if I'm going to be honest. Uh, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, Die Hard 2, probably his second best movie. Then shit like Cliffhanger, Deep Blue Sea, the uh, abominable fucking Cutthroat Island. Um, and yeah, you, get, you got Gina Davis here, kind of peak Gina Davis, I'd say. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson, who is just runs away with this every time he's on screen. Uh, Brian Cox, David Morse, um, Yvonne Zima, all kinds of fun actors in this. And I, I feel like this one's overlooked because everyone just kind of immediately gravitates towards uh, Die Hard uh, when it comes to like Christmas action movies. But like The Long Kiss Goodnight's got like a little bit of that spy stuff going on that was getting popular in the 90s, you know, kind of kind of riffs off La Femme Nikita a little bit. And I just loved it. I love I, again, also the the sort of mental health stuff in this is kind of bullshit. Like, it's got that old trope of you get a knock on the head and all of a sudden you forget who you are, and then you get another knock on the head and you remember who you are. That kind of bullshit. But um, it works here. You just kind of go with it, and it's fun. It's a good action movie. Gina Davis and Samuel L. Jackson are like a really good pair in this. Uh, they really uh, work off one another really well, and uh, I love it. I think it's great. I honestly, I'd just love to see some sort of reprise of these characters somewhere down the road, even just like Samuel L. Jackson's character or something. Um, it's a fun comfort food movie. Another uh, watch with friends is Rotor R O T O R nineteen eighty seven, also known as Blue Steel, directed by Cullen Blaine, who mostly worked in like art and animation department in like every TV cartoon you can think of from the eighties and nineties. This is the only film he wrote and directed. And I think with good reason, I think it kind of shows why, uh, although there was all kinds of like, uh, behind the scenes fuckery that goes on in this movie, but it's starring a bunch of nobodies, uh, Richard Guesswin. This is his only role. Uh, Margaret Trigg, uh, Jane Smith, Brad Overturf, David Adam Newman playing the character Shoe Boogie, which is something to behold in this movie. But basically, yeah, Rotor is, if you're not familiar, is a Robocop ripoff mixed with a bit of Terminator in it. It's, it's basically, hey, we've built a robot cop and now it's gone on a rampage and is like, not necessarily killing a lot of people. It's it's mostly focused on this one chick, and it's just kind of hunting her over and over again. So that's where the Terminator thing comes in. And, of course, the RoboCop thing is it's a robotic cop, right? So, and this is not remotely a good movie. Um, it's one of those ones that sits up there of, like, Samurai Cop with being so inept that it's funny. Because there, there seems like there's an earnest 
kind of attempt to make this good and there's just like no possible way it could be good uh the special effects range from good to absolutely terrible there's this stop motion like um skeleton of rotor before he gets his like flesh on him which i don't believe they ever really explain how he gets flesh on him like did you guys grow flesh like did they do with the terminators or is he just wearing like a a skin suit or like what's going on um either way like there's this stop motion which is some of the worst stop motion i've ever seen just like it man it's terrible um but it's it's one of these movies where the script constantly has exposition explaining everything to the point where you have the movie explained to you about five times over by every character it seems like and it's terrible and what makes it more impressive in, in how terrible it is is how much uh, ADR is going on from different people uh, by the time like like I said they had production problems with this so by the time they got in to do the ADR they couldn't get half the cast back to do their lines so I think pretty much most of the main cast aren't speaking with their own voices when you uh, when you watch the film. It's very very uh, jarring how uh, how blatant it is, and I don't know. It, it just feels like yeah, it feels like something someone who worked in cartoons all their life might write as a you know, and especially like shitty cartoons would would write and think this is good but apparently there was like a lot of rewriting going on too like half the script was thrown out and it's it's just a glorious mess it's super entertaining because it's so bad um and uh yeah rotor it, it's uh it's one of those crap classics and um you know if you're into having a night with friends watching a bad movie you, you really can't go wrong with rotor it's terrible shit um, moving on to some stuff that is outside of screenings with friends that I've just been watching on my own. First one I'm going to mention here is Killing Machine from 1984. This is also known as Goma 2 for some reason. I don't know what that means. It's some sort of Spanish thing, I assume. This is a Spanish-made Euro crime picture directed by Jose Antonio de la Loma, who, um has some fun writing credits and, and such. Uh, he wrote on Grand Slam and Dynamite Gym. Doesn't have a lot of uh, interesting directing credits. In fact, this might be his most interesting one. Uh, it's starring uh, George uh, Rivero, who was a Mexican actor. Um, I think he's still alive, actually, maybe. Uh, and he was in stuff like... He was in a ton of stuff, honestly. But he, he did show up in some notable things like Soldier Blue... Rio Lobo, uh, Fulci's Conquest later on. Um, I think he was one of these Spanish and, you know, Spanish-Italian type actors who often got cast as a Native American Indian because he had darker skin, right? That, <laughs> and also, he was just like a real muscular guy. He was a muscle man. So it's, it's like a guy you could have running around in your Western with his shirt off and look good. Um it's also got uh, an amazing cast here outside of uh, Rivero. 
It's got Margot Hemingway, uh, Willie Ames, just in here for an, an Itali- you know Italian Spanish paycheck. I don't know if there's any Italian co-production here, but it definitely was a Spanish production. So you know Willie Ames just showing up in some sort of Euro production to get a paycheck. Uh, it's got Richard Jekyll, um, Hugo Stiglitz of Nightmare City fame is in this as a bad guy. And uh, the principal bad guy here, Lee Van Cleef, and he's having a fun time in this. This movie is not that great. It's basically, it's weird. The story is weird. It's like, I don't know why you approach a story from this angle. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, But Rivero is like a retired terrorist at least that's like what a lot of the descriptions of this movie you find online say, like terrorist or hitman. They don't really, I don't think they really ever spell it out in the movie what he did. He, you just know he had a past with a shady organization that was either like a terrorist group, um, an assassination group, or maybe like some radical communist uh uh, cell that was fighting like Franco's fascism or something like that in Spain. Because it is set in Spain. Um, but anyway, Rivero is now a truck driver. He drives produce across Europe. Uh, he it, it picks up with him driving his truck from Spain through France. And what he doesn't count on, and what I didn't count on, because I didn't realize this is a thing. I, maybe it's just made up for the movie. But there is a produce mafia run by the Farmers Co-op in France. And they don't like Spanish oranges and apples and such uh, crossing their border and going to other countries or going somewhere in France. So they are basically stopping them at the border, strong-arming them, destroying their product, and sending them back on their way. And so Rivero at one point with his lovely wife, like takes her on a, Hey, you want to take a work trip with me kind of thing. And, uh, like Williams plays the, you know, the, the brother-in-law. Um, and so anyway, he takes his wife with him and she's in his cab of his truck as he's driving across Europe or whatever. Right. It's, it's Euro truck simulator, but honestly, not enough of that. It, like we we get like, Oh, he's a truck driver. And then we don't see enough of him doing truck driving, which I kind of wish they had thrown a little bit more in there, but that's probably just me. Um, But yeah, uh, he gets stopped because he decides to say, like, fuck you, French produce mafia. I'm not playing your game. I'm taking my produce across the border. And so they, they beat the fuck out of him and they set his truck on fire, not knowing that the wife was asleep in the truck's cab. And she burns to death in the truck in a pretty drawn-out scene, honestly. Uh, It's like it cuts between him getting the shit beaten out of him and his wife burning to death. Now, it's not like a graphic burning to death with gore or anything, but like they keep cutting back to the truck burning up. And so, of course, they don't kill Rivero. Uh, They just kind of like leave him laying on the side of the road beat up. And he decides he's going to take revenge. Now, the thing about Rivero is um, he's not necessarily like a uh, um, Charles Bronson, like going around shooting people kind of uh, dude. He He's more, when he was 
you know, doing his illicit activities, he was like a guy who planted bombs and explosives in places. So that's how he gets rid of people. So uh, he takes his revenge on, like, the chief bad guys in this produce mafia run by Lee Van Cleef. And he's just going around planting bombs and, like, you know, setting people up to die in, like, car bombs and shit like that, which... To be honest, not the most exciting thing to do in a revenge picture, but that's the way he goes with it. And um, yeah, it's it's a weird one. It's I'd, I'd say it's rightfully obscure. I don't think a lot of people know about this one, but at the same time, I kind of had fun with it, mostly just because of the actors in it, because they were all really good. They were all kind of having fun and like doing their best in in their roles. So, like, they kept the thing moving, even though, like, the story wasn't super original or interesting. Um, Lee Van Cleef, especially, was having fun in this. And I think the most exciting thing about this for me is it had a DeAngelis Brothers score that I hadn't heard before. A late period one at that, you know, like, they, they kind of were really not doing much by the mid-80s for film anymore. Um... So, you know, they were way past their, like, peak period of, like, output. And uh, they have a cool little, like, 80s score in here. And I really liked it. So, uh, you know, kind of a bare recommend, but a recommend all the same. Um, moving on, one I just watched last night, Flesh and Bone from 1993. This is directed by Steve Cloves. He wrote and directed The Fabulous Baker Boys. He wrote uh, Wonder Boys. And um, he's also the guy responsible for doing the screenplays for basically the entire Harry Potter franchise. Uh, so, you know, adapting the J.K. Rowling books to the screen. Um, and he's got uh, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime coming out at some time in the future, which is a book I read back in the day about a autistic boy solving the murder of his dog. And uh, it's a pretty good book. I, I, I recommend it. So I'm actually kind of curious to pick, you know, see that movie, see how that turns out. Um, but anyway, Flesh and Bone, it's got Dennis Quaid in it. It's got Meg Ryan. This is around the time when they were like hooking up together and, and getting married and shit. Um, they might've been married this at that point that point i can't remember but it was it was around the time they were uh romancing each other and kind of thing um it's got james Kahn in it and it's got gwyneth paltrow in an earlier role in it too um and it's a neo-noir kind of modern neo-noir slash western in a way um a very uh well tries to be a psychological kind of neo-noir kind of thing it's it opens with this young boy appearing outside this typical rural family's house um he seems like he's abandoned and lost and so they take him in and they uh feed him and all that and then that night he uh, gets up out of his bed that they've uh, put him in and uh opens up a window and in comes his dad who is James Kahn and of course the young boy is a young Dennis Quaid um, so this is like 30 years in the past and, uh, James Kahn, this is a, this is a con that James Kahn and his, and his son run or a grift or whatever you want to put it scam where he does this 
to, you know, families that they can target and lets dad in and dad goes in and cleans the place out and uh, they run off of all the goods and, and you know, sell them for money and shit, right? But of course it goes wrong. Um, the the father wakes up, comes down, checks out what's going on, uh, and James Conn kills him and then proceeds to kill the wife and the young son, leaving only the baby daughter alive in the house. And then we flash forward to 30 years later. Dennis Quaid is now the grown-up version of that kid who is, you know, estranged from his father. It's been years since he's seen him, and he's kind of just keeping this low-key existence as a guy who goes around and fills up, like, um, uh, like cigarette and condom machines and candy machines and, and pop machines. He has this whole route he goes around and does. He doesn't have his own house. He just stays at motels. He has, like, a woman in every town. And he just kind of lives this, like, really low-key existence where he, you know, stays quiet and stays away from people. Um, he's got this whole psychological baggage of like that night and the horrible things his dad, his dad put him through and he's kind of worried that, um, and this is where the flesh and bone thing comes in in the title. Uh, he's kind of worried that he has the same propensity for like evil that his father has and he doesn't want to like trigger that and he just wants to like basically stay off the radar and... So he runs into a woman, and this is, you know, where some of this, uh, sometimes the uh, coincidences in a noir seem incredibly unbelievable, and you got kind of got to just roll with them. If you can roll with them, then fine. If you can't, then it kind of takes you out of the movie. So he runs into Meg Ryan, and we learn pretty quickly that she was actually the little baby girl that uh, survived that uh, night 30 years ago and she has just kind of like lived this life as a drifter as well um, kind of like she's in an unhappy marriage and she she does like stripping and stuff on the side and uh, she's just ruining her life she's probably an alcoholic um, so they run into each other and at first they don't know who the other one is, of course, and so they, they hit it off, and seems like something might come of a relationship between these two, and then James Kahn comes wandering back into uh, Dennis Quaid's life. Uh, he's been running his grift for the last 30 years. He's been picking up partners and dropping them when it's convenient. His, recent one, his most recent one is Gwyneth Paltrow as this sexy young con artist that he uses to like trick people and get money out of and stuff like that uh she's a, she's got a specialty with going to funeral homes and pretending to be the bereft and then you know uh when no one's looking like pull rings and jewelry and stuff off dead bodies and uh sell that shit um yeah the story's kind of typical um you know, basically, Dennis Quaid's life gets turned up on its head, and it's like, um, is James Conn going to discover that Meg Ryan is that little girl they left in the crib that 30 years ago? And if he does, what what's he going to do about it? Because he doesn't like loose ends, and there's this, you know, whole uh, push-and-pull drama between these characters... Like, what's going to happen? Who's going to discover what? Can Dennis Quaid tell Meg Ryan about... Uh, 
the relation between the two because Meg Ryan feels like, oh, there's something off. There's something weird going on here. Um, you know, are they going to jeopardize this newfound relationship between the two because uh, some secrets come out? So I've got all that stuff going on. And it's oh, mostly okay. I, I think the biggest thing about this is that it, it is a long movie. It takes its time. It draws out. It's a hangout movie, basically, because there's a lot of, like, character stuff going on. Uh, there's a, a lot of fun character stuff going on, actually. Like, I think all the actors in this are great. Uh, I know Roger Ebert kind of shit on James Caan in this one for some fucking reason. I don't get it. Uh, he said there's, like, no, there's no, like, joy in his performance or something. And I was like, what fucking performance did you watch, Roger? Jesus Christ. Like... Goddamn, uh, James Conn is good in this. He's this animated kind of like hillbilly con man motherfucker. Like he's he's good, but like there's underneath it, it there's a underlying evil and like sort of like reptilian coldness in the dude's eyes at all times. And I don't know, maybe Ebert just wasn't jiving on that, or he picked up the wrong cues from that, or I don't know. Uh, Khan's great in this, I think. I think it's the performances here that carry this fucker because the story is it's pretty it's it's pretty bullshit. Like the coincidence here is oh, too, almost too big of a one. Um I can usually let these sort of things slide, uh, but in this case it's like it's a there's some super fucking coincidences going on in this film where these people keep running into each other and the relationships between each other and all that shit. Um, that stuff's a little bit eye rolling, but the performances keep it going and the the movie's fairly predictable, but not a hundred percent predictable either. So I enjoyed seeing where everyone went with this one. So. Um, Flesh and Bone, it's a good little neo-noir if you want to look for it. it it's also kind of, like, widely not really talked about anymore, I don't think. I don't think a lot of people really know about it, and it kind of just went under the radar. I don't know how successful it was. I know it made about $10 million. I don't know how much it cost to make. Um, I can't imagine it was $10 million. It doesn't look like a super expensive movie, but who knows? Uh, and the final one I'm going to mention, and this one is great. This is a mind fuck. this movie. Mr. Organ from 2022. This is a documentary done by David Ferrier, who has done the uh, documentary before this, uh, Tickled, which was about the uh, seedy world of uh, tickle fetish. Uh, you know, he, he kind of he was exploring that world and got like pushed back by some of the uh, gatekeepers in those communities. Um, it's a it's an interesting doc on its own, and he also did the Dark Tourist series where he was just going to like notorious places around the world and shit. Um, this is basically David Ferrier as a journalist was doing like a story on an unusual amount of um, sort of wheel. Uh, what, what do you call it? Wheel capping, whatever. Uh, wheel locking. Um, done in front of a local antique shop in New Zealand. Um, some, someone was putting clamps on cars that were parking in front of this antique shop to a degree that was 
much, much more, <laughs> much larger than the usual um, that you would expect. And he quickly finds out that the antique uh, store owner had a deal with uh, one Michael Organ, uh, the titular Mr. Organ, um, to basically run a scam, essentially. Kind of a legal, you know, under-the-radar kind of legal scam where, you know, he he would sit out there waiting for people to park, and as soon as they leave their cars, he'd be immediately out there putting a clamp on their wheels. And he was extorting people for money, basically, doing this. It's like, you know, I'll take it off for this much money or whatever uh, so we don't have to go through the tickets and uh, all that other shit and to get the police involved and um so they were running this and basically david ferrier kind of jumping into this world finds himself kind of trapped and clamped um because he quickly kind of realizes that michael organ is a world-class world-class narcissist and just fucking crazy um he is like a incredibly manipulative uh just nutcase who sucks people into his world and then won't let them go like honestly the only way the only way to get away from michael organ is to like <laughs> is to like leave the country essentially because or go to jail because he is that bad. He, he just inserts himself into your life. If you get on his radar and then he sucks you dry of all your resources, all your mental energy just takes over your life. He's one of those people that just has this knack for doing it. And we quickly learn that he's like a longtime con man who's changed his name over and over again, changed his story about who he is, like often claiming he's, um, then you know, uh, his ancestry is like got royalty in it, and he is royalty, and he has just fooled a lot of people. Usually, very vulnerable people, people mentally vulnerable, people on the fringes of society. You'll notice like a lot of his roommates that get um, interviewed seem to be uh, you know gay men. Uh, he seems to really. Ha- enjoy victimizing gay men uh he's he's doing kind of the same thing here with the antique uh dealer who's an old lady he's kind of manipulating her you get the feeling that like michael organ probably wouldn't be above killing somebody (coughs) excuse me like he seems like that kind of a dangerous person um there's no there's no allegations or anything towards him actually causing the death of anyone or killing anyone but I don't know. You just get the sense that, like, if he could find a way to make this old lady die so he could get all of her money and an inheritance or whatever, he would probably do it. But anyway, he inserts himself into David Ferrier's life. So, kind of turns the tables on the documentary a little bit. And so now David Ferrier has got himself basically wrapped up in Mr. Organ's drama where he is going to just bore you to tears with the details of his life, like narcissists do. If you've never met an actual narcissist in your life, like a serious, hardcore narcissist, they are generally the most boring, trying, 
just vapid people in the world. And but they just have a knack for manipulating people at the same time. And that's what happens here. Like he starts making threatening advances into David Ferrier's life and so much as like getting a copy of his key to his house and then letting him know, oh, by the way, I have a key to your house. And just just this, you know, low-key, passive-aggressive, threatening shit that he does. And what's more threatening is, like, he's got a reputation for going to court and winning his court battles and being his own lawyer and winning his own court battles. So David Ferrier does, doesn't know what to do. Like, he's he kind of stepped into a trap and now he's looking for the best way out whether you know whether he's got to like cut his fucking foot off or not you know like to get away from this dude and it's it's just a it's a descent into fucking world-class narcissism and how terrible it actually is it's like you do not want to know michael organ you do not want to know this guy because if he latches onto you your life is gonna be ruined um and i highly recommend it it's it's an excellent documentary it's a little short hour and a half I, f- I feel like kind of could have fleshed out things even a bit more but um, for what it is it it's excellent so um, yeah that's it I, I don't know how good these uh, little mini reviews were of shit I watched I'm just kind of doing this on the off the cuff you know I'm not doing editing, any editing really this time out and uh that's it i don't know when the next episode's coming out the next official episode that is it should be i'm hoping next week i'm hoping i'm I'm hoping we can get something done next week but it's kind of dependent not only on lady lee's schedule or me getting a guest but also just um like i said there's some personal health stuff going on in the background of uh for my family so depending on how that kind of goes uh, we could be doing episodes next week or i might not be doing an episode for a while that's just where it's at so uh there you go guys uh, i mean if that's the case by the way um merry christmas and happy new year to all of you uh very much appreciate you guys listening and um we'll be back when we're back uh because you know Right now, I got to get out of here because I don't have time for this bullshit. So I'm gonna say this to all you people listening right now. You get your spanking ass out of here. But I say that in the most loving, affectionate way possible, of course. All right, guys, we'll see you later. Bye bye.
You have been listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For further episodes of this podcast, please go to tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through.